This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Even if you've never been to Ireland, I'm sure you can conjure up the image of an Irish pub. Friendly, cosy and old. MacArthur's pub has been in the family for many generations and is also the setting for much of Ali O'Neill's book, Family Matters. Welcome, Ali. Hi, thanks for having me on. Oh. Now, if we've conjured up an Irish pub... Where and what is the snug? (laughs) So the snug is leaving a few Australians baffled, I think. So the snug is effectively a little room that was positioned off to the side of the bar. And this is a small room. You you might squeeze about eight people into the snug, but it was um, private. It is, sorry, the snug still exists. It's a private room. Um, It could have a little door, it might have a half door, Um, and it's normally right beside the bar. Um, And originally, the snugs were set up for women, Mm. so (laughs) the men could drink in peace and not be disturbed, but also the women got to drink too, so, you know. And now they're just these really little cosy places that you go into. You're always winning if you get into the snug in the pub. Well, the book starts in the snug, and Evie McCarthy is 79 years old. She's rather uh, superstitious. She's seen a magpie on a gate, a snowdrop in summer and a painting has fallen off the wall. Now she's turning over tarot cards. What card does she turn? (laughs) Well, she sees the worst possible card you can see. She sees that death is coming for her. Mm, The grim reaper. Yeah, he's knocking. But over the years, Mm. Evie has also used the snug for something else, something that she's gifted in. Mm -hmm. Evie or Evie is um, a matchmaker. So she is the town matchmaker. And um, traditionally in Ireland, the matchmaker was a man. And this tradition went on up until about the 1950s in rural Ireland. Now, it's kind of smaller towns. So I've, you know, as you can do with fiction, I've kind of bent it slightly. So Evie is a woman um, and she is conducting her matchmaking slash almost counselling services often in the snug of the pub where she has managed to put couples together and in some cases even take them apart when they shouldn't have been together for too long. And uh, yeah, and she's had uh, a big influence on the town of Ballyhay. Her charges, it's 50 euro now, 150 (laughs) when matched, and you must have patience. I'll call you, don't call me. But she did give Paul the pig farmer extra advice. Oh, she did. <laughs> well, you see, if nothing, Evie is a very practical woman. So her her fees have been, you know, she's she's worked out the fees over the years. So she and she knows like not to be she doesn't want to babble on. She just wants to do the business. She knows what she needs to do and she doesn't want too much input from from the people she's matching with the pig farmer. <laughs> one of her pieces of advice was that he needed to go and shower <laughs> because he was walking around with the smell of a pig, basically. And she said, uh, you know, he'll never meet a woman like that. So, I mean, there are, she's very practical. Yeah. Vivi's husband, Michael, used to run the pub, but he's been dead for many years. So who's running it now? So at the moment, her daughter, Yvonne, is running it. Yvonne is recently divorced. She's mid-50s and has found herself for the first time in her life standing on her own two feet. 
and she's doing what she always wanted to do, which is run the pub, or so she thought. And mm. she's she's finding it difficult. Well, she left her husband, Brandon, to find herself. We feel the pub must be going well because when we first meet uh, Yvonne, she's in Aldi buying extra non-necessary things. She was also a bit of a shopper when she was married to Brandon. In fact, I'm going to get Ali O'Neill to read a little bit about Yvonne and her shopping habits. (laughs) This is a passage that's been chosen. Um, She'd skip out of the shop every time, delighted with herself. But as she'd get closer to home, the pep in her step would dampen her brain in a flurry. Where could she hide her bags? She couldn't let Brandon see. She'd promised him she'd stop. The pounding in her chest, the worry. She'd hidden bags in the front garden before and in the boot of her car. There were nooks and crannies all over their house. It was full of hidey holes, but it always made her nervous that she'd be caught. Sometimes, hours after the adrenaline high of shopping, she'd find herself collapsed in tears, devastated by her loss of control. This loss of control, yeah. Well, her daughters know that they can rely on her for extra money. But the oldest daughter, Molly, didn't borrow money from her. She borrowed from her mother-in-law. What for? So Molly is a stay-at-home mom and she's living, again, she's living the life that she always hoped she'd have. Herself and her husband had agreed that once they had kids, she'd give up work and, you know, they're living in a nice suburb in Dublin, which is exactly where they felt was the right place to bring up their kids. But in order to get to the nice suburb in Dublin, they had to borrow money from um, her mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. And that is proving to be a little bit tricky. A little bit tricky. So how yeah. is family life for Molly? She's struggling. Yeah, she's struggling. In fact, Molly is, um, you could say she's drowning. She's exhausted. She's sleep deprived. She's two small kids. She's she's hating on her life right now. She's wondering where she she used to be, the person that she used to be. Where has she gone? Mm. Um, and she's she's really struggling with with what she the dreams that she had and then the reality that she's in. Well, I think any mother with a three-year-old and an 18-month-old would know this. This is a quote from the book. Molly wasn't tired anymore. She had passed tired about a year ago. Now she was just a haze of heaviness, like the air was a deep, sticky mud and everything ran in low, slow, in slow motion. Mm. But in contrast, her younger sister, Rosie, appears to be very happy. She loves her job. She's uh, met this new guy, Simon. She's having wonderful sex. And he is helping her develop an app. What's this app going to do? So the app is, um, I mean, you'd probably call it like a poor cousin of Tinder a little bit. It's a uh, it's a matchmaking um, dating app. And the idea with it is, is that it it collects your data and um, it it knows the real you. So not mm. the you that you filled out on your application form where you're putting in like, I like, you know, tall men with, you know, blonde hair or what it it. it it knows the real you because it knows actually what you've been surfing on the internet and knows who you, who your friends are, the photographs, the all the all this kind of stuff. So it's basically like, a, yeah, <laughs> that's that's the premise for well, their app. Yeah, Simon knows the logistics and has the algorithms and scientific explanations of how this app will work. But Rosie is the face of the app, and the app is called D-Love Guru. (laughs) How does Rosie get her two and three-quarter minutes of fame? 
so Rosie gets a slot on um, on Sonia's sofa, it's called, which is like a YouTube channel, uh, which is very popular. And uh, Sonia is on to, is is happy to promote this new and exciting dating app because Sonia's also looking for love too. Which <laughs> <laughs> mm, I'm not going to tell what, how how she meets, but that's just lovely. Yeah. Rosie is an incurable romantic, always in love, and believes in a soulmate. Her family know know about Simon, but they haven't met him. Mm-hmm. Mm. And her brother-in-law, this is Molly's husband, Damo, works in IT. And he's a bit concerned. So let's just hear about his concern from 160. Okay. This is uh, Damo has, has heard about the app and the data, and uh, he is a little bit concerned. So he's, he's having a conversation here. I'll be honest with you, it sounds pretty amazing that you're getting people to hand over all of their data. I mean, data is king out there. It's practically our most valuable currency as human beings at this point. That data you're collecting could be worth a lot of money. Molly could see the cogs and wheels in Damo's brain clicking over. That's the real business there, not the matchmaking. Targeted advertising, audience projections, that kind of consumer information is gold. What software are you using for security? Mm, (laughs) Security. (laughs) Well, um, that's the heart of the story, really, isn't it? Just what happens for them. Yes, and what happens to Rosie and. Ah, especially when the the app doesn't work on Rosie's friend. Mm. But back to grandmother Evie and another quote. Evie had often thought about writing a relationship book. She was going to call it Get On With It. (laughs) (laughs) Love had peaks and troughs and you had to stay around in the shallows to ride the highs of the waves. It was all worth it. But even Evie has re-met her very first boyfriend, Carl, and feels the matchmaking sparkle with him. But she's got a concern. Yeah. It comes back to that Grim Reaper. It comes back to the Grim Reaper right at the beginning. And she's, um, because she believes so definitely in superstitions and uh, and all all of that, that that she's met this wonderful man. She's re-met him and she feels this spark of romance and she would love Mm. to pursue it in many ways. But then she feels she's not being fair. She's an overthinker. <laughs> well, we started with superstitions, and Evie was the seventh child of a seventh child. And there's somebody in the uh, in the following generations that was a call baby, C A U L. Yeah, yeah. If anybody out there has heard of the call babies, um, so it's an again, it's a superstition. It's basically that the baby is born fully encased in the in the placenta, and these. I mean, they happen, but it's like, I think it's like one in 10,000 births, maybe even maybe even a smaller amount than that. And um, historically, they were seen as being a very lucky, mm. lucky baby and, and therefore for, for the rest of their lives, a very lucky person. Well, we started with the pubs and we know that uh, Ballyhay, where this book is set, has become gentrified. But this Irish pub still offers crack. Yeah. <laughs> Can you explain what that is? Well, crack is well, God. It's I mean, it's it's uh, it's translated really as fun, um, and but it's it's very definitely an Irish trait, and it's uh, it's a lot to do with talking and singing and talking and talking, yeah, and the squeeze box, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and a lot of laughs, yeah. Another quote from the book: "Storytelling blooms from the streets of Dublin." Now, Ali O'Neill. Do all your books have an Irish setting? They do at the moment. At the moment, they do. Um, the book I'm working on uh, presently is actually set in Australia, so Ooh. that is a new a new challenge for me. Yeah, so I'm. Um, 
Yeah, I think I think maybe it was to do with the fact that we all we got stuck here in COVID and I wasn't able to travel back. Um, and so I've kind of been inspired by um, some Australian stories. And yeah, well, which I is hope nice. you found nice little settings like the snug in uh, in Dublin. <laughs> Set in Ireland, Family Matters has the importance of family, sisterhood and motherhood at its heart. And Ali O'Neill has written with humour about the age-old desire for matchmaking. And a lot of Irish got stuck in Australia. They were called convicts, weren't they? <laughs> but anyway. They were a whole other type of ancestor, yeah. <laughs> but we are actually travelling from rural Ireland to rural Australia I lie because the truth is too destructive. These words can be found in the novel Denizen by James Mackenzie Watson, where the truth remains out of our grasp until the end. So, James, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we meet a rather troubled Parker Davis in the first section of the novel. As an eight-year-old, he has a rather fraught relationship with his mother, which is almost violent. Yeah, so Parker, as you say, is an eight-year-old growing up on a remote cattle property in western New South Wales who has a very adversarial relationship with his mother. Uh, He's an only child of a teacher in a small rural community and a farmer who works the land they live on. Uh, And his relationship with his mother is certainly characterised by conflict and power struggles uh, in a way that you you, I think most people wouldn't associate as being between children and parents. And the names they call each other. I mean, Meredith, his mother, hates him, says so. And yeah. He, and he hates her. And they throw around insults like, you know, Meredith says at one point, don't forget a, a mother's love is not unconditional and things like this that really, you know, cut to the, ho- the, the core of their relationship and, and who they are as people. And it shapes them in, mm. in many ways. Uh, there is a car accident, so Meredith is on painkillers as well. Um, but um, Parker feels somewhat responsible for this accident. Parker feels responsible for, for causing the accident. The accident happened when Parker was in a fit of rage. He struggles with controlling his emotions, with being able to contain uh, his feelings, and this often comes out in explosive outbursts, and the car accident that gives Meredith her back pain happens during one of these such outbursts. But is his but are his outbursts caused by his mother? Or So all of these uncertainties are still there. We get his cousin Reuben visiting one Christmas. Look at the way Reuben behaves if you want to talk about genetics. I'm not talking about genetics, I'm talking about learned behaviour. And together, Reuben and Parker victimise Toby Lloyd, and it's frightening. Yeah, Parker and Toby uh, carry out a, a, a pretty horrific act in attacking this poor child who's obviously got some some issues of his own, some problems of his own. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty about exactly what's driven them to, to cause this act and what's, what's driven each of them, their individual motives and how they've come together. But it's believable in terms of eight-year-olds behaving that way. I mean, you've got the line where um, Parker is told by Reuben, you can catch stupid, you know, so yes. he, he wants to get rid of 
the, yeah. the potential. Yes, and so people. and so Parker, you know, for, well, is Parker leading Ruben or is Ruben leading Parker? Are they are they acting on something they believe or are they acting because children do bizarre and horrific things sometimes? There's is it nature? Is it nurture? There's all these questions about you know what exactly has driven their behaviour and then which of course shape what the consequences are. And children need to learn a moral compass. Mm. It's not something that's sort of automatically given. Mm. So they've pushed the boundaries in yes, many ways. Yes, and this is something that, of course, there's precedent for in the real world. You know, you think of James Bolger in the UK in the 90s and the children uh, that that carried out that attack. And, of course, there was all kinds of questions in the media about nature versus nurture and what had led these boys to do something so awful. But it doesn't even have to be taken to that extreme. I mean, I've taught yeah. a class of Year 9 boys. Ah... <sighs> They, they, you know, they they aren't aware. They have to be taught yes. in many ways that ability to sympathise or identify with others and what others are going through emotionally. Mm. So it's it's understandable. It is, in, yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now your setting of the novel is remote Western New South Wales. Remote Australia's constant argument with itself is one line. You end up fetishising about how harsh the land is, but expecting the people who live there to never complain about it. And this town is what you end up with, generations of family toughing it out in misery and destitution, which eventually becomes mental illness, which gets channelled down the line but never spoken about. Australia and its struggle with the landscape. I? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think that this is this is something. So I grew up in in rural New South Wales, and this is something that I witnessed firsthand again and and again and again growing up. I think there's this fascinating, as you say, this tension between these two ideals that uh, the people who live there never seem to be able to to wholly resolve for themselves. You know, there's a sense that the land is quite adversarial, that it's seeking to actively to do them harm. Um, and I wonder as well. This is not something that I explored in the book, but I wonder as well how much of this comes down to uh, settlers' guilt, settlers' anxiety, because of course there's sixty thousand years of indigenous culture that lived quite happily on the land without needing, you know, that kind of uh, justification or validation in the way that uh, the people who've settled this land and colonised this land seem to need. Yeah, well, it's the Lawson Patterson debate. Exactly. I'm, yes. I'm back from yep. up the country. Very sorry that I went. Oh, so yes. you're back from up the country, Mr. Townsman, where you went. So this romanticism about the bush, but at the same time, it's a very bleak. Um, outlook that some people have and it has led to suicides. Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's the I think that, that that tension is quite often at the heart of the again the sorts of horrific things that you tragically see happening in the bush, not just from time to time, but quite frequently. So now we've got this notion of whether it's the landscape mm. which is the psychological challenge, if it's learned behaviour in terms of our interaction with our parents. Or if it's genetic, if we are predisposed to these sorts of behaviours, which leads us to part two or section two of the novel. And Parker returns to Collidae, the, the township. Um, he's been asked to come back, we believe, and he meets up with some of his old school friends and they go camping. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. Parker has, in fact... Um, been a success. He's been able to get away to Sydney, become a music tutor. He seems to be successful. He's got a relationship with Kelly. He's got a son, Christian. But in returning, he comes across some of his old friends and uh, each of them have their own agenda and their own truth. So Hazel seems concerned about Nailey. What's going on there? 
So Parker's two closest friends uh, from childhood, we meet in Act 1 in the book when Parker's in high school, are Naley and Hazel. Uh, and Naley and Hazel both also, at the end of high school, go off to, you know, and do their respective things. They become adults in the big wide world, sort of leave their, their childhood, their township behind, and then reunite, as you say, as adults for a camping trip on the property uh, that Naley grew up on. Uh, Hazel has requested this regathering because she's concerned that Naley is uh, too deep in a in a relationship that Hazel is worried is going to end up killing her, and the motivation for this camp uh, is to try to protect Naley from Jonah, this possible new boyfriend that's on the scene. But once they're all there and gathered in the creek and the isolation of the bush and camping, it becomes a bit unclear as to what's actually happening and whose motivation. Uh, sorry, the, what the motivations for you know Haley, Nasal Parker, Jonah, and we've got Matt in yes, there as yeah, well. Matt who persecuted Parker yes. at school. So another another childhood friend. Well, child childhood bully. Childhood yeah. bully. It's children do in schools, but at the same time, then you've got little suggestions here because Jonah has a syringe, Jonah has a knife. So you're setting up the sort of expectation that all is not going to be well. Yes. Well, or that... Um you know that for for every character there's a myriad of ways that you can look at their actions their circumstances and the conclusions you draw are going to be influenced by all sorts of things and people interpret the evidence to suit themselves so hazel has got an ulterior motive for looking at naley in a particular way or looking at that relationship between uh naley and jonah um Naley swears black and blue. She's not in a relationship with Jonah. So she tells them directly. But is that the truth or not? We don't know. You've left us completely uncertain about who these people are and what they intend. So you've created quite a puzzle there. Um, And there are ulterior motives. There's an accident. Now, we can't go into too much detail, but suspicion falls on Jonah. Yes. But then Jonah provides an ulterior narrative in some ways as to why Parker is there. Yes. yes. And as things get worse and worse and deteriorate further and further for every possible explanation of what's actually happening that seems fairly certain and fairly solid, there's a, a just as, as convincing counter explanation that runs entirely in the face of the first explanation and of course leaves everyone involved feeling very discombobulated and entirely unmoored. And it's plausible. So all of these alternate narratives are plausible. So the reader is left un- well uncertain about what the actual truth is, which brings us to section three. Now, James knows the outcome. I know the outcome because I've read the book and we can't give the outcome away. But it's here in section three that you bring these two narratives together, the narrative from... Uh, Parker's past when he was eight and the current narrative but you break the style uh, and and the narrative style um, it, it's broken in uh, well the sentencing is broken the paragraphs are broken in some ways um, it's almost impossible to to pick out an example but promise and empathy the barrier between me and my sins a flesh and blood mirror in which I saw a blameless 
six years later, as hazel screaming filled the creek like summer floodwaters. Fault, and I don't think your brain is broken. Nothing is wrong with that with you that can't be fixed. I know that better than you think. It wasn't your fault, and I don't think your brain is broken. Nothing is, but when I woke in the morning, my forearms were red and angry. So th this would have been a challenge to write, to bring these narratives together. I think, you know, the, the, the beauty of of being the author of the narrative is that it's all very clear in my head, <laughs> which gives me... But that's only your narrative. Exactly, yes. But hopefully that gives me, you know, the the freedom and the control to be able to shape it in such a way and weave it in such a way that there's that thread of truth that runs through it. So once you get to the end and look back in retrospect, it's very clear what was happening and that there could have only been one outcome, but that as you're reading it, you don't have that sense of certainty. If You, you know, I think that it's that having a clear sense for myself of where it's going and what's happening hopefully provides that framework, even if it's not apparent on first reading. But the reader believes it ostensibly. Yes. On first reading about Hazel and why yes. she's there, Naley and what she's saying and Parker, but then as each tell their own interpretation of events, as the reader, you're, hang on a minute, this is plausible, which is the actual truth. And I hope that the point that comes through from that is that uh, you know, misinformation flourishes in isolation, which I think is another a metaphor for life in the bush as a whole. Uh, you know, particularly these middle acts, the middle and third act of the book that take place in very close quarters in isolation without sort of scrutiny and input from the rest of the world, that it's very easy to follow lines of thought to conclusions that aren't necessarily logical. But even when we're confronted with our friends, we often don't tell yes. the truth yeah I mean, yeah how are you i'm fine except what's the undercurrent which there? confuses the truth even further as you say and adds even more ammunition to that that confusion in isolation the other question here then is can we actually reconcile the past because parker is basically still in the past mm. to a certain degree i mean he has an affinity with naley because naley helped him when he was a, a an adolescent at school um, in some ways, he's looking for the similar sort of help again. So that relationship is important to him, but he's not getting the truth from that. No, exactly. Yeah. And I think, again, it comes back to that isolation, geographical isolation, social isolation. It's all at the heart of a lot of what seems to be able to go wrong in the bush and that uh, prompts the, and drives the events of the novel. But then there's the next question. Does the environment mm. create us? So that's, you know, and... and it's a question we haven't really answered in Australia no, yet. No, and it's, I mean, it's an age-old question, isn't it? Nature versus nurture. Yeah. Is, is this something yeah. that's inherent or is this something that we are you know, forged by the land to create? Or are you genetically predisposed yeah. to behave yeah. in this way? So if the reader wants to find out the truth, they're going to have to read Denizen by James Mackenzie Watson and it's a Penguin release. Uh, Denizen, what's the... Um, Meaning of the title. So uh, a, a citizen is someone who formally belongs to a place legally. A denizen is someone who belongs to a place informally. So denizens are kangaroos of the bush. And, of course, that relates again to the themes of never really being able to belong in the bush. So if you're setting your novel of Irish people in Australia... <laughs> yeah, we don't really belong here. <laughs> but this is where titles are interesting. Mm. I know um, Ali's title, Family Matters. We run on that word of matters and, you know, they're... Family concerned or family matters. matters. The matters yes, that arise within a yes, family. No, it yeah. is, it really is. And of course, as you had the ge uh, genetic 
run through. So did we, didn't we, with our matchmaker? Yeah, generational story, yeah. Mm, mm. So I was speaking with Ali O'Neill about her book Family Matters, published by Alan and Unwin. And I was talking to James Mackenzie Watson about Denizen and it's a Penguin release. And it's your first novel. It is, yes. Congratulations. Oh, thank you very this much. This is Ali's fourth. <laughs> and a new one, which is coming out soon. That's why she has to go. She has to go home and write. Go home and, and, and write. And James, are you working on another? I am. I was uh, very lucky in that I had another one just about ready to go when this one got picked oh, up, which will save a bit of time. <laughs> the so it's the third one that's going to be the hardest. It, that's right. Yeah, I'll have second book syndrome on the third book. Um, and similar concerns? Uh, certainly focused on mental illness in Australia and how the, the that can warp the lenses of perception. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Australians have got a lot of problems, haven't they? <laughs> got a lot of things to write about, David. Indeed we have. Well, actually... I want to ask James how he got his manuscript to Penguin. I won the Penguin Literary Prize oh. with it. As <laughs> one does on the first novel, you know, it just <laughs> happens. And what about Ali? How did you get your first one published? It took about five years and about 5,000 rejections. And uh, yeah, I wasn't nearly as lucky as James. It, um, yeah, it, I went I went literally around houses with my one manuscript and then I signed with an agent here in Melbourne and uh, she sold it within five weeks and there was a couple of publishing houses going after it. The same book that had yeah. been rejected <gasps> well multiple done. times, yeah. Do publishers know what they're talking about? This is what I want to know because we get very successful books and yeah, first-time books and then things that have been published by a respectable publishing house and you think, hmm, <laughs> interesting, isn't Well, it? I had a good read. I really enjoyed Family Yeah, Matters. well, Den Denizen is a good read mm, as well. Different. Well, I guess that takes us out for another week. and we'll be back. Next yeah, week, next more week, authors. More authors in the studio. It's so much fun to have people, <laughs> actual people. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.